many people by the end of their life have had at least one surgery, and I counted up and I think I've had four so far. Uh, hopefully you're not younger than me and had more than that. Uh, maybe you're older than me and have far less than that, so that's good for you. Uh, but I'm sure none of us really like puts a surgery on our calendar and say, you know, I need to schedule something fun this year. Let me schedule a surgery, you know, getting my wisdom teeth out, or oh, you know what, let me get that hip replaced that I've been wanting to get replaced for a while. We never schedule things like that. And the, the five surgeries, did I say four before? I think it's five. I've had where they're recommended uh, or were necessary to fix a problem that I was currently experiencing. Uh, one was for a broken bone, and so I had to have surgery to get my collarbone put back in place. Or one was um, for tooth issues or, or whatever it is. It was to prevent or to fix something um, that was broken. And we don't want to schedule surgeries, and yet we'll put them on our calendars and we'll say, okay, I'm going to go through with this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bear it, I'm going to go through this pain, I'm going to go through this suffering. And why is that? Even though it's scary and painful, we, we still have them put on our calendar. And we're even willing to pay someone to cause us that pain, and sometimes lots and lots of money. And thinking about surgery, often we do a little interaction time at the beginning of the service here, but we're just going to use surgery uh, to think through as we go through tonight is a good way to think about the topic we're studying tonight. Because you go through surgery... Even though it's painful, even though it's hard, even though you don't want to do it, you go through it for an end benefit and that's greater than the pain. You go, I needed my bone fixed, and so I had to go through the pain in order for my body to heal properly. I had to submit <clears throat> myself to that thing. And as we're continuing to explore God in this series, we've already talked about whether life has a purpose and whether there is a God. And last week, we said that God has clearly shown us and told us that he exists. It's like show and tell. The universe is God's show and tell. Um, Jesus on the cross is God's show and tell that he loves us. But if God really does exist, that leads us to ask this week's question. Why does God allow suffering? Why does he allow pain? Why does he allow evil to exist? And often people have called this the problem of evil. And the common way to say it is this. If God is good and God is powerful, then evil should not exist. Pain should not exist. Suffering should not exist. If God really was both good and powerful, he would do something about all this evil, all this suffering, and all this pain in our world. But since our world is filled with evil and pain and suffering, people conclude, well, God can't be both of them. If, he was, if he's powerful enough to stop it, well, he must not be good, because otherwise he'd do something about it. And if he's good, well, he must not be powerful enough, because if he was truly good, he would take away all this pain and suffering and evil we have in our world. Maybe... It's the fact that he is good and hates it, but can't do anything. Or that he just wants to leave it there. He, doesn't, he could care less. Or perhaps he doesn't exist at all. And that's what explains why our world is the way it is. But this is, you know, that's kind of an intellectual question, an intellectual way to pose it. And philosophers you know, can sit around and ponder it and debate it all day long. But it's a really deeply personal question. And while I was in seminary, Katie and I planned uh, to have a child. And we said, okay, once I graduate... Let's try to start having a kid. A year went by. It wasn't working. And so eventually we went to a fertility doctor and started asking them for help. And month after month after month came and we got our hopes up. And then it was let down with pain and suffering and disappointment. Month another comes. Hope, pain. And we had to ask, we're asking, God, we want this. You've given us this desire. You've told us that being parents is a good thing. So why aren't you giving us this good thing? And I'm sure each of us in this room has had moments where we've asked that. I'm sure each of us has asked, her, why God? 
why are you doing this? Or maybe if you didn't believe in God at some point, you had something painful, and you just said, why is this happening to me? And we wonder, why am I experiencing this pain and suffering and evil? You may have experienced the loss of a friend or loss of a house or loss of health or loss of a job. You may have lost a child or a parent or a spouse. You may have had horrible, unspeakable, undeserved evil done to you at some point in your life, and you don't know why that happened. And whatever the suffering and the pain or the evil is, you may have had moments on your knees, in tears, asking God, where were you? Where are you? Don't you care? Why are you allowing this to happen to me? And tonight the goal is not to minimize or invalidate pain and suffering you've experienced. You know, we don't answer this question, why does God allow suffering? And okay, wrap it up with a little bow, and you all leave with this gift of, I now have all my answers, and all my pain is gone, and you know, all my trauma I've experienced in my life is gone. That's not the point. But one of the most powerful and beautiful aspects of the Christian faith is that it communicates to the entire human experience. If you read through the Bible, you discover characters who suffered immense pain and immense suffering and immense evil at the hands of others. And then they don't stuff that away. The reason we know about it is because they expressed it to God. They expressed their pain, their grief, their sorrow, their mourning, and even dared to express their disappointment with God. God, what's up? I didn't do anything wrong. Uh, why is this happening to me? Why have you let us down? Why aren't you keeping your promises? Where are you? And the fact that God included those parts in the Bible tells us that God invites us to bring those things to him as well. All of our emotions to him, even if they're angry emotions toward him. And what we're going to do tonight is talk about good news when it comes to our pain and our suffering. And here's the big idea for this evening if you like taking notes. God is powerful enough to use your suffering for good. God is powerful enough to use your suffering for good. God is powerful enough to use your suffering for good. And to explore this big idea, we're going to look at three characters, and coincidentally, all their names start with J, but it's Joseph, Job, and Jesus. So we're going to start with Jesus. We're just going to kind of hop into each of their lives quickly uh, to see what they have to say about suffering. So first with Joseph. In our first scripture reading in Genesis 50, that was about Joseph. It records an event in his life. We're going to flip there eventually, so if you want to go back to that, it's page 44 of the Black Bibles here, or we're going to, the verse we're going to focus on is Genesis 50, verse 19. It's on page 44 of the Black Bibles here. And that event in Joseph's life, we don't have time to get into all the details of Joseph's life, and actually we were in a series in Genesis earlier, and we paused to do this series and a Christmas series. And we're going to come back to Joseph and cover his whole life, Genesis 37 to 50, um, starting in May right after Easter. So if you're interested and intrigued by this story, maybe you'll like to hear all the details of how he got there. But for our purposes, we're just going to get a, a quick inventory of the suffering that Joseph experienced in his life. So here's the list. He lost his mother as a young boy. He was hated by his brothers. He had 11 of them, so he's hated by a lot of them. Uh, at least 10 of them hated him. And his brothers hated him so much and were so jealous of him that they sold him into slavery at the age of 17. He's like a junior in high school, and they sell him into slavery and send him off to Egypt, or they don't even know where. And then while he's a slave, he's falsely accused of sexual misconduct, and that gets him in prison for a whole bunch of years for a crime that he didn't commit. And then while he's in prison, he meets this guy who could get him out of prison, and the guy's like, I promise I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to the pharaoh of the king of Egypt and help you out. And the guy who can get him out of it forgets about him once he's out of prison. 
So that's just an inventory, Joseph's life. And maybe you can relate with some of those. Maybe you've lost someone that you've loved. Or have you ever been mistreated and abused by the people closest to you, like Joseph was with his brothers? Have you ever been accused of something you didn't do, but you still suffered as if you did it, and suffered for maybe a long time? Have you ever seen an end to your hard situation, only to have someone let you down and not keep their word? And 20 years after being sold into slavery by his brothers, there's this famine in the region, and Joseph, he's wise, God is with him, and the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, recognizes this, and he's like, hey, this guy uh, can help us out. He helps to make a plan so that Egypt can survive this famine, storing up a bunch of food. Uh, But the famine hits even up where Joseph's family is living. And so eventually, Joseph's dad is like, hey, guys, you need to head down to Egypt and get food for us so we can survive this famine. They don't know Joseph's in Egypt, but they go down there, and eventually they meet this guy who's distributing the food and in charge of it. And it's Joseph. They don't recognize him at first, but eventually they do realize it's him. It's been 20 years since they sold him into slavery. They think he's dead or gone or wherever he is. And when they come face to face with him, they are in shock, of course. And eventually the famine just keeps going on and on. And Joseph says, you need to bring my dad and all the whole family down here to Egypt. And you guys can stay safe. And while I provide food during this famine. And then eventually their father dies. They come down, their father dies. And the brothers are worried. Okay, dad's gone. Now is Joseph going to seek revenge for what we did to him all these years ago? And that's where Genesis 50 comes in that we read. So let's start in verse 18. We're going to reread four verses, verses 18 to 21. And they say this, His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am, in, am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I'll provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And there's two actions that Joseph doesn't take. First, he doesn't take revenge. He tells them, don't be afraid, uh, asking them, am I in the place of God? In other words, he's in this high position of power. I mean, their life is basically in his hands. If he doesn't want to give them food, they're going to starve and die. And he's this high official. He can be like, hey, Pharaoh, uh, I'm really important to you. These guys have wronged me. Like, you know, take care of them. So he's in this place where he could do something to these immigrants in Egypt, and he's capable of making their life miserable. But he knows that They're answerable to God for what they've done, not to him. And so he doesn't take revenge. And second, he doesn't minimize what they've done. Even though he recognizes good has come out of it. In verse 20, he says, you meant evil against me. He doesn't say, you know, don't worry about it. It's water under the bridge. It's okay. It wasn't a big deal. Actually, good stuff came out of it. So uh, what you did actually was, was a good thing. He's like, no, you did evil. He doesn't minimize what they've done. But the rest of verse 20 is key. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And Joseph recognizes that God used their evil for his good purposes, because if it weren't for him, Egypt wouldn't have had a plan to survive the famine. And if it wasn't for him, his own family wouldn't have had a plan to survive this famine. So he says, through your evil, God has used it to good to bring about the saving of many lives, keeping all these people alive because of where God got Joseph over those 20 years. What we see here are two intentions at play. There's first his brother's evil intention, and then God's good intention, which is, tells us our big idea, reminds us of it. God is powerful enough to use your suffering for good. The evil that these brothers meant against Joseph, um, that suffering was then used 
for good in Joseph's life and other people's lives and even in his brother's lives. The very evil they did came back to them as good by saving their lives. And that's Joseph, so let's move to Job. The book of Job is one of the oldest in the Bible. And in the opening two chapters, we're given this unique perspective. First, we're told about Job, who's like the godliest guy you can think of. He loves God. He's just given it his all to walking with God and doing things that honor him and helping his family along. They're kind of... They're kind of going, doing wild stuff, and he's always like, okay, I'm going to pray for them and offer sacrifices for them. So he's like going above and beyond. He's a model of spirituality. And then from there, getting intro to him, we go into the heavenly throne room of God, where he's sitting around uh, with these other spiritual beings who he uses as his servants in the world um, in an invisible way. And then one of them comes forward, whose na- name in Hebrew is uh, the Satan. We usually call him Satan or the devil, but it's just the, the Satan there. And it get, we, get, we can't go into like all the details of who that is or what he does, um, what he's about. But in this story, it seems that he has been going around on the earth looking to see, is there anybody who truly loves God? He's kind of like, I don't know if he's putting people to the test or whatever, but he comes and reports in, and God's like, what you've been doing? And he's like, you know, roaming around doing this thing. And then God says, well, have you considered my servant Job? You're looking for people who love me. There's no one like him. He loves me the most. Here's what God says. There's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Have you considered him? And this is amazing. It's God's high evaluation of Job. He's just like, yeah, this guy's doing it. It's not just a human perspective that people are like, yeah, he's a pretty good guy. God's like, he's the best around. (coughs) Go check him out. So he presents Job as a person who truly loves God. But the Satan answers, well, does Job love you for no reason? Doesn't he only love you because you've protected him and because you've blessed him? Doesn't he only love you because you've given him good things? And so now, if it's not like a true love, he's just kind of like married you for the money. He's in the relationship, not for you, for it's for all the good things that you give him. And so he says, if you take away the good things, he'll curse you to your face, and then you'll see what's really inside Job. So surprisingly, God gives the Satan permission to take away good things from Job. The next day is the worst day of Job's life. First, someone tells him all your oxen and donkeys have been taken by thieves and the servants over them were killed. Before he can finish just speaking, another guy comes and he says, all the sheep were burned up. I don't, poor sheep, I don't know what's going on there, how they get burned up, but all the sheep are burned up and the servants over them, these are basically his servants are his employees. And this is like his business is whittling away. All the sheep are burned up and the servants are dead too. And before that guy can finish talking, another guy comes and says, a raiding group took all the camels, and he killed all those servants as well. And so it's a bad day for Job's business and his possessions, you can say the least. But what's more, while that servant is still speaking, another came and said, your sons and your daughters were eating in the oldest brother's house, and a wind came and blew the house down, and they're all dead. And I'm the only one here to tell you about it. And one day, Job lost all his livelihood, and all his children. And we can, it's sometimes these stories are hard to relate with. But I mean, just imagine if you built a business and it just crumbled in one day. Or your job, you just got fired and you had no other way to make an income. And at the same time, you heard that very same day, all your kids just died because your house burned down. This is Job. And so have you ever received a phone call and heard the person on the other end say, you better sit down, I have some terrible news. <coughs> have you ever had a day where you kept receiving bad news after bad news after bad news. Have you ever felt like you were going to be crushed by all the bad news and by all the things life was throwing at you? I think Job felt that way. Job's response is remarkable because look at chapter 1, if you have it open, chapter 1, verses 20 through 22. 
It says, Then Job arose, he tore his robe, and shaved his head, and he fell on the ground. What does he do? Worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. While grieving, he worshipped God and said, and I'd imagine through tears, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But it gets worse for Job. Because God says to Satan, Job still loves me, even though you took all that good stuff from me, from him. And the Satan says, yeah, but Job himself wasn't injured. You know, you can take all the stuff around a man, but take a man's health, take his dignity, take his body, you know, give him a sickness, then he will curse you. And so again, God grants the Satan permission. Job is struck with sores from his head to his feet, and sitting in the dirt, he takes a broken piece of pottery and starts carving the sores off of his body. So if you ever had a health crisis that just totally <clears throat> wrecked your life and shook it, if you ever felt like you were at your limit, and then another bad thing just hit, like all this stuff just happened to Job, and then another bad thing, has the strength ever drained from your legs because you heard the words, you have cancer, or your heart is failing, or you have a tumor? And all this pain has broken Job's wife, and we can empathize. The bank account is empty, the chairs around her table are empty, and her husband is now sick, laying in bed, or I guess out in the dirt, it says. But look at chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. Job's wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. And again, his response was remarkable. But Job is in a rough spot, and the next chapter shows us that he doesn't know what the point of his life is anymore. Why was I born? This is going to be my life? Why was I born? Cursed the day I died, or I was born. And then three friends show up, who do a good job at first. They agree with him in silence. But then eventually, Job kind of bursts out in this cursing the day that he was born, saying, I don't know what the point of life is. And, and they have a belief that I imagine a lot of us struggle with and a lot of us hold because they start saying their belief is God rewards good people. God punishes bad people. Job, you're being punished. What'd you do? Come on, Job. And Job's like, no, I didn't do anything. And they keep saying, Job, what'd you do? We know bad things happen to bad people. Bad things are happening to you. What did you do? Be honest with yourself. Search your soul. Tell us. Tell us what you have done. Job's response over and over again is, I am innocent. I've done nothing wrong to deserve this. And he's right. God even said so. We heard God say so in the opening chapters. And Job is frustrated with his friend's accusation, and he's frustrated with God for allowing him to suffer like this. He tells God, I want to talk to you in person. I want you to come down here. I want you to explain yourself. And God does show up, but he never explains himself. He doesn't tell Job why he's suffering. Instead, God shows Job Job, your perspective is limited. God gives Job this little tour of the universe and asks Job some questions. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Did you cause the sun to rise this morning? Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Can you send forth lightning? Can you, can you give understanding to somebody's mind? Do you know how the animal kingdom works? And other questions like these. And God is showing Job, I am governing this enormous, complex universe. 
And I am doing things and handling things that you have even no idea and your perspective is limited. Job doesn't learn why he suffered, but he learned God's trying to show him who he can trust as he does suffer. And I'm a big fan of an organization called The Bible Project. And in one of their podcasts talking about the book of Job, they, they talked about it like this. It's like it's similar to when a parent makes a decision and they've thought of all these reasons for why that decision is good and best for their children. And then the child comes and they're questioning um, the parent and saying, like, this is unfair. You shouldn't have made that decision. You shouldn't be doing this. This is unfair. You sh- this is wrong. But instead of defending what they did, the parent instead puts their arm around the child and says, let me show you something. <coughs> and brings them out to their tool shed and just shows them all these tools. Like, you know, you know those things I built in our house? I used all these to do that. Do you know what this tool's for? You know, a child, depending on the age, but a little kid would be like, I don't know what that's for. Okay, do you know what this one's for? Do you know what this one, what this one does? No, I don't have any way. Okay. And then moving on to the office, brings them to their office and like, uh, do you know what that person does? I have no idea. Well, they report to me. I tell them what to do and I help them with their job. Well, you know what we do over here in this room? No, I have no idea. Okay, and then they bring them back home and sit down with them uh, at the, you know, the budget on the computer and say, you, you know what all these spreadsheets are for? You know what all this is for? You know what all these numbers mean? Oh, no, I have no idea. Um, here's a stack of paper. You know what all that's for? You know, these are the bills I pay every month. And show them the checkbook. Do you know what this is for? No, I, I, don't, I never used any of that stuff. And then showing them thing after the thing. Here's, here's their retirement account. Do you know what this is for? How this is set up and how this works? No, and the point isn't to make the child feel stupid. The point is to show them your perspective is very limited. Look at this whole world of stuff I am ma- I'm managing for your good that you have no idea that I'm even doing. You have no idea how I'm doing it. Um, and you couldn't do it if you were put in this position. I'm doing all this and your perspective is so <coughs> limited. And so the point isn't you're dumb. You know, get over it. It's, hey, I'm doing, I'm wise. I know what I'm doing. I'm doing good things for you. You need to trust me. And in the end... Job humbles himself before God and says, you're right, I'm going to trust you. My perspective is small and limited. And I sometimes like to think of it <clears throat> kind of like this. Uh, you know, sometimes we, we're like, we can think, if I can't think of a good reason for what I'm going through, there isn't a good reason. And I just think our perspective is so limited because hopefully you can see this. I'm sure many of you have seen this picture. You know, is this a young girl or an old woman? Name says both. But you could be looking at it at one point, and you're like, yeah. all of us could swear, that is a young girl. And then all of a sudden, well, look at this. Isn't this the eye of the old woman or whatever? You know how, to, you know how this works. This is the curls of the young lady. This is her, the silhouette, her nose, and her chin, or whatever. But then if you look at the other way, this is the nose of the old lady. This is her mouth. This is her chin. This is her, the hood of her hair. And it's like if our perspective can be so wrong about something so simple... Maybe some of you, maybe I didn't explain that well. You can come look at it afterwards. I'll put it up. Maybe I shouldn't put it up here. You'll look at it the rest of the time. <laughs> but yeah, if our perspective can be so wrong and so limited and so off with something this simple, can't it be, couldn't it be so wrong and so off and so limited with something as huge as why does God allow suffering in the world? And God would maybe take us like he did with Job and take us around his tool shed and say, hey, do you know all this stuff works? But again, we see two intentions at play. Satan's intention to prove Job doesn't really love God. And God's intention is to prove Job does. And so there's these dual intentions. There's an evil one 
there's a good one. And the, this repeats our big idea. God is powerful enough to use your suffering for good. Because in the end, Job's love for God was proven. And he ver- learned a valuable lesson about how much he can trust God. And so lastly, let's look at Jesus. Both Joseph and Job were good men who suffered innocently. They weren't perfect men, but they were good men and suffered innocently. But Jesus was the most innocent of anyone, and he suffered the most of anyone. But just like Joseph and Job, Jesus suffered as part of God's plan to use the intentions of evil for good. And to understand Jesus' suffering, we need to zoom out a bit, because um, one way to answer the question, why does God allow suffering, one answer to that is to say, because we chose it. We chose it. I'm not saying that you choose it uh, every single day. The whole, you know, if somebody's done evil to you, I'm not saying blame the victim. Like somebody's done evil to you, we don't blame the victim. But as a world, um, there's suffering in our world because we chose it. Because in the very beginning, when God created the world, He created it good. And he made it as a home where humanity would live in His presence, under His care, His authority, His guidance, His love and protection. He told the first humans, Adam and Eve. If, that if you choose to run things your way, it's going to result in a world of death. It's going to result in a world of suffering and pain. And at some point, they did choose to run things their own way. They chose to live life without God, life without God on the throne. And even though God warned them this is going to bring death into the world, into your lives, even though he warned this is going to suck life out of you, even though he warned there's going to be painful consequences, they rejected his authority over their lives. And from that day on, suffering is part of our world. And our immediate response to that might be, well, that's not fair. It's not fair that we should suffer for somebody else's bad choices. Why should we have the negative consequences of their poor choices? I didn't choose that. I didn't choose this world for myself or for my kids or whoever it may be. And we're quick to say that it isn't fair that we suffer because of someone else's poor choice. But what about benefiting because of someone else's good choice? How is it fair for us to benefit from the good choices of our parents or our grandparents or our great-grandparents? How is it fair for us to benefit from the sacrifices the founders of our country uh, made to build this, this country? And if fairness means living free of the negative consequences for other people's poor choices, fairness then also means living free of positive consequences for other people's good choices. And here's where Jesus comes in. God says, I so love the world I'm going to send my only son, and he's going to enter this world of suffering. He's not only going to enter it, um, he's going to take on the suffering that you brought into it so that he can defeat it. The Son of God became a man who experienced the suffering of being a human being. And Jesus always made good choices. He always trusted God. He never rejected God's authority. He always lived under it. And yet he suffered as one who did reject it. And it may be true that Adam and Eve were the first to not follow God, but they weren't the last because we do the same thing as them. We want to run life our own way. You know, God, I know you have these things that you ask of me and you'd like for me, but I kind of want to pick and choose the ones that I like. Um, all of us struggle with that. Like, there's, If you lay out a list, we would do the ones that agree with our values that we already have or the ones that are easy for us or the ones that, we, we, that make sense to us. We do the exact same thing as them. And we're suffering for their poor choice, but we're also suffering for our own. Because how many of us will look back in our life and be like, yeah, some of the things that went wrong in my life were actually because of me, because of the poor choices I made. Or the things that went wrong in other people's lives are because of your poor choice you made that affected them. But the same cannot be said of Jesus. He suffered for poor choices he never actually made. And Jesus came into this world to take on the consequence of our bad choices in order to free us from them. 
The symbol at the center of the Christian faith is a symbol of suffering. It's a symbol of the cross. And this was Jesus' greatest point of suffering. When he took on the death that we all deserve for rejecting God. Jesus always said yes to God, but he sacrificed himself in our place to pay the penalty for all the times that we say (coughs) no to God. And now we can benefit from Jesus' good choices. And if we give our life to him, he'll give eternal life to us. And he restores us to relationship with God by forgiving us. And in Jesus' sufferings, we, we see again the dual intentions, the evil intentions of man and the good intentions of God. In Acts 4, 27 to 28, we're not going to turn there, but let me just read this. You can write it down if you want to look at it later. Acts 4, 27 to 28. It says this, talking after Jesus' death, it's saying this. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And Jesus was betrayed by one of his followers, denied by one of his closest followers, accused of things he didn't do or say, put through a sham of a trial, whipped and beaten, and then hung naked on a cross for all to see. That's what Roman crucifixion on a cross was about. And that was only the last 24 hours of his life. That's what he went through. And those who did this intended it for evil, but God intended it for good because by it he paid for our forgiveness, opening a way for us to come back home to God. Our big idea is this. God is powerful enough to use your suffering for good. Kind of think of those dual intentions, the evil of man and the good of God. It's like a knife in an evil person's hand is used to kill, but a knife in the hands of a doctor is used to heal. And it's the same instrument used for different purposes. Both will cause pain, but one is pain on the path to death, and one is pain on the path to life in healing. A knife in the hands of an evil person is used to kill, but a knife in the hands of a doctor is used to heal. And God's future for our world is one without suffering, where he is totally healed. It's a world run by him, and a world run by humans is one with suffering in it. But a world run by God is one with life, not death. And suffering releases our white knuckle grip on this world as our hope, because it's only then when we say, wow, this place is kind of a mess. And then God's like, yeah, I didn't make it that way, and I want to free you from it. But it's only in feeling the the suffering and the death that we brought into the world, those are the negative consequences of a choice we made. And um, parents, I'm sure you know that sometimes you let your kids live with the negative consequences of the things they're doing because it's the only way we'll learn. Like, don't, how many times you say, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. And finally, fine, do it. Wow, that really hurt. I didn't like that. Uh-huh. Yeah, now you won't do it again. <laughs> you know, sometimes that's, that's a simple, kind of a simple way to think of it, but it's like we would never release our hope on this world because we would think it's the best we'll ever have uh, without suffering. And God uses the suffering to bring healing to our life, to release our grip on things that bring death into us, into our lives, and dissatisfaction, discontentment, and he uses suffering to release our grip on it. And it's easy when we suffer to believe that we know better than God. You know what, God, I would do a better job of running this world. I'd do a better job of running my life. But it's that belief that got us into this mess in the first place. That's the exact belief that Adam and Eve had. We know better than God. We'd do better running at this world. And they took it into their own hands, and now we have a world of suffering. And we need to have a heart of trust when we're going through suffering. And Right before Jesus went to the cross, he went to the garden. He went to his father, and he went there to pray with some of his closest friends. And we read the passage in Matthew 26 earlier. It's on page 832 if you want to turn there. We're not going to read the whole thing, Matthew 26. I'm just going to read verse 39. 
So Jesus sees this suffering coming. He sees this pain coming. He sees death coming to him. And so he prayed three times, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In other words, Father, please let me take a different path. Father, please do this a different way. But still, I trust you. I submit to you. Your will be done, not my will. Jesus knew the why for his suffering. Why is God allowing me to go through this? He knew the reason. He told people many times, I'm giving my life to save others, to purchase forgiveness. But even knowing the why didn't make it easy. And some of us may know the why. We may say, all, maybe tonight you're like, yeah, I agree with everything you just said. God uses my suffering for my good. But that still doesn't make us schedule a surgery on the calendar uh, with glee and, and, you know, and, and excitement and happiness. But the Bible says we can count it all joy when we suffer because we know God is doing good through it in our life and in other people's lives. So even though, knowing the why doesn't make it easy, we can still pray with him, Father, I would love if I didn't have to go through this. Would you please take this away? But not my will, yours be done. But we also sometimes rarely know the exact why of our suffering. Why is this particular thing happening in my life? What is God doing exactly with this thing? Job never knew it. Uh, maybe at the end he figured uh, this, this suffering was to help me know God better. But he didn't know the whole picture of it. He didn't know the conversation happening in heaven. And then Joseph didn't know the why as he went through it, but he's expressing trust to God. If we read the whole story, we see him expressing God. But then at the end, he sees it clearly. How could he know that that's why he was sent there? We won't always know the why, but we can trust a who. We can trust that God is powerful enough to use our suffering for good, both in our lives and in the lives of others. And maybe it'll take 20 years for us to see it, or five years, or maybe we'll never even, even know until later on, uh, apart from our lifetime. And I think something we often say we would all probably agree, uh, sometimes we've looked back on an event or we've heard people say, you know what, uh, five years out from a divorce or five years out from uh, cancer or five years out from whatever happened, a job loss, somebody says, you know what, it actually turned out to be the best thing for me because of X, Y, and Z. Uh, and people say that all the time. It's, so, it's the hindsight thing. You know, hindsight is twenty twenty. It's like, that, you know, that was actually the best thing for me because I can see all these other good things that came out of it. This relationship was horrible or this job was horrible or whatever it was, was horrible. And faith is bringing that hindsight perspective into the present and without having to wait five years to say, you know, this is actually the best thing for me that that bad thing happened. It's saying in the present, God, I trust that you are doing something good with this, that you are working out all things for my good, for the good of those who love you. I know this is the best thing for me because you love me and you're good and you're powerful. If you wanted to take this away, you could. And the reason you're not taking it away because this is the best thing for me is bringing healing to my life. And faith is trusting the who when we don't even when we don't know the why. And I just want you to take a moment. If you have a bulletin, uh, you can use that. Um, if you don't, or you just want to do it in your mind, you can do that. Um, but just maybe as we've talked tonight, there's been areas of suffering that have been brought up for you. Uh, maybe areas you've never thought about uh, may, or had tried to bury deep down or areas that are present, like this week, this is happening and it's suffering. I just want you to write those down or just think of them in your mind. And then we're going to talk about two truths that apply to them.
sure you can perhaps reflect more, write down more, but here's two truths for you in the midst of <coughs> that suffering, or maybe it happened a long time ago and you still need to deal with it. So first truth is this. Suffering does not mean God is far from you. Suffering does not mean God is far from you. Suffering does not mean God is far from you. Sometimes when I'm most near and most involved with Hudson is when he's crying and he's in pain. And I'm actually making it happen. Not because I want to put him in pain, but it's because there's something I need to do for him. I mean, at this young age, he gets upset about everything that he doesn't want me to do. It's like, Hudson, you've got food all over your face and you've got like charred boogers coming out of your nose. I need to wipe this off. And he's just, ah, ah, and you think I'm just torturing him. But it's like, he, I'm doing what's best for him. Um, but, you know, his limited perspective, he's like, this is uncomfortable. I don't want to do this. I want to be doing whatever, playing. And from his limited perspective, he doesn't understand what I'm doing. But it's, I'm very near. I'm not, he's suffering, you know, from his perspective. I'm near. I'm involved. And, and I'm expressing deep love for him in doing that. And yet he doesn't like it. And so sometimes when we're going through the most difficult things in life, the most uncomfortable things, that's when God is nearest to us and he's working transformation in us. That, uh, the greatest transformation that we're experiencing so we can have more love and joy and peace. And the second truth is this. Suffering does not mean God isn't for you. F-O-R. Suffering does not mean God isn't for you. Suffering does not mean God isn't for you. And I think about Job. <coughs> Job's friends are like, Job, looks like God's against you. You're suffering, God's against you. That's, that's the formula. And Job's like, no, I swear, there's nothing, there's nothing and nothing. And God even says, yeah, there's nothing, he's, he's great. And so suffering does not mean God isn't for you. Jesus lived the perfect life and yet suffered the most. And even before the cross, he suffered rejection. But sometimes, as I said, I willingly do what Hudson doesn't like for his good. And as a parent... I have to love Hudson enough to do what is best for him, even if it means he temporarily dislikes me. And God is willing to do what is best for us because he loves us so much that he's willing to be temporarily disliked by us. It's like God's not bothered by that. I mean, I, I think if, if my expression of fatherhood and love and tenderness to Hudson is a fraction of God's tenderness and love towards us as we're going through hard things, I have to believe that God is tender and compassionate towards us, you know, I tell him, you know, as I'm wiping the boogers or whatever it is, or trying to stretch him, help him learn to crawl, it's like, I know, buddy, I know, I know you don't like this, but I'm doing it for you. And I have to believe God expresses that same tenderness towards us, and he's just saying, I know you don't like this, I know it's hard, this is for your good. And some of the four hardest words for us to say are those four words that Jesus says, your will be done. Some of the hardest four words. And so if you're wanting to know this week, what can you take away and, and apply from this? It's, it's learning to pray those words. Your will be done. Not your will, God. Not my will, God. Your will be done. We can pray for God to take things from us. Jesus healed people of their suffering. That healing was a foretaste of the world God wants for us. A world without suffering. A world without leprosy and debilitating diseases and, and whatever else it is. And so gee, that's a foretaste of it. But... Yet, and sometimes we release our kids from suffering that they brought on themselves. But sometimes we need to let them sit in it so that they can learn it. 
And so we need to stop believing that we know better than God. We need to say, your will be done, God. And as many of you know, um, and Katie and I tried to get pregnant, and then eventually we were like, you know, maybe adoption is what we want. We felt excited about that. And we went through the adoption process, took about six months, and uh, eventually we were like, okay, we are all approved. It's going to take a year for this to happen. We got a call in a month that a mom had picked this one. Oh my gosh, it's happening. Um, that wasn't Hudson's birth mom. That was another baby that we had hoped to adopt, and it fell through. And so again, we're like, God, why? Why this hope? Why are you doing this to us? And it was the question we needed to ask is, will we trust God? Or at least I was asking, will I trust God is good even when he doesn't give me what I want? Will I trust that he's good even when he doesn't give me what I want? And in those moments, you know, when I'm talking about working with Hudson, trying to help him grow and stuff, and I'm so near to him, I'm so loving with him, going through that uh, was one of the most painful experiences, but it was also one of the most formative because I felt in the midst of it, as I was trying to say to God, your will be done, like, I don't know what's going on, this sucks, uh, and it's okay to, you know, to not be happy with it and be angry and sad. Uh, I felt, it was a weird feeling, it was just like, I feel things changing in me, I feel my character being molded, I feel my trust being changed in God, I feel God doing something in this, even though I don't like it. And so we need to leave with this truth, that God is powerful enough to use you're suffering for good. And as we leave, we can all be praying, God, your will be done. We can pray for him to relieve us, but we ultimately pray, your will be done, not mine. I want your good will to be done in this world, not my will that I often think is better than your will. Let's pray. Father, we are, uh, have such a limited perspective. And would you help us to trust you, to trust that you're good and you're loving and you're powerful and the situation that we're in is not because you can't change it or because you don't want to change it or because you don't love us. It's because this is the best thing for us. And so would you help us to release our grip from this world and look forward to a world that you've healed um, with your healing hand and where evil and suffering will be done away with. In your son's name we pray. Amen.